0: you are listening to the forge leadership podcast forge leadership network mentors trains and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25 equipping them to lead in politics culture and business for more information or to get involved visit forgeleadership.org i'd like to introduce you to our our special guest john stone street john thanks so much for for being with us and and many of our students followed you with Breakpoint and the Colson Center. And and just for those that haven't, you are the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. You've been a prolific author, speaker, Christian thought leader, and uh, we're thrilled to to hear from you today on cultural engagement. I know I I gave you a couple ideas and I've heard your kind of a, a wonderful hybrid for us. So I'm pretty. I'm pretty excited about that. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I actually was with one of your, one of the Colson Center board members, uh, Ed Simcox, last week in, in Indianapolis, and he. Oh, uh, good. He had a uh, a great story where he told me. He said, of all, and I, I thought I'd share this with the students. Of all the, uh, because you're carrying on this legacy in growing the Colson Center. He said, of all the political heroes and cultural icons that he had, he said when he met them almost to a man, the shimmer wore off a little bit, right? That they were never quite as as special or as great or, or you know as as he had hoped, you know, as a younger man. And he said that the one major exception was Chuck Colson, who he said was just as yeah. authentic and just as much larger than life in the in the the way of humility and discernment and all that. So thank you for what you're doing at the Colson Center, Breakpoint, Summit, all the all the all the training that you've provided to so many of us and, and many of these students. Thanks for joining
1: us. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. So happy to be here. It's really great to be with you guys and love, love the Forge Network, love what they're doing. And so really was excited to be able to do this. I am doing this from home. And uh, after having three kids and thinking we were done, my daughter's prayed for a little brother. And so there's a two-year-old running around this house like a crazy man. So if you hear somebody screaming, don't worry, everything is fine. It's completely normal. He has two two volumes, zero and 100, So, and that's two speeds, too. So anyway, he, he, he's a good kid, but I just wanted to preempt in case anything happened. My, my fascination is with culture and a little bit about my background. I grew up in a home with Christian parents, went to a Christian, you know, went to church every Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday night. It was a Baptist church, so we were there all the time, and it had a Christian school, and so I was there. I literally was in the same building six out of seven days a week, hearing from the same people. Uh, a lot of times, my principal was, you know, would, would be a Bible teacher, and my, you know, youth pastor would be my basketball coach, and my Sunday school teacher would be my fourth grade teacher, and it was just kind of one of those worlds. But growing up, the, the world or the culture was basically a place to be either avoided or condemned. That's how we kind of thought about it. It was either a place to completely avoid or just basically to condemn. And we grew up in the shadow of a figure that if you uh, you may know this name, you may not, his name was Jerry Falwell. And somewhere around the late 70s, early 80s, Jerry Falwell got very politically engaged. In fact, he was responsible for founding something called the Moral Majority, which eventually led to Reagan, Ronald Reagan being elected. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jerry Fallon. If you haven't heard that name, he's just one of the legends in this time period. And one of the things we always like for people to remember at the Colson Center is that, you know, we're not just, we, we, we didn't just drop into this cultural moment out of nowhere. Like there's a history. There's a whole history that basically not only predates, but really led to where we're at. And Falwell it was a big part of that, you know, late 20th century history. And what's interesting is somewhere around the late 60s, when Martin Luther King Jr. had had, you know, led the civil rights march as a pastor, and had really pushed for that. Jerry Falwell was actually quoted as saying that he would never get involved in politics because if he did, it would get in the way of him sharing the gospel. That was 1969 when he said that. 1979, he's basically getting President Reagan elected. I said, well, what happened in those 10 years? What happened in those 10 years was a lot. 1973, Roe v. Wade, the whole, you know, not allowed to pray in public schools, that happened in the 70s. And so there was, the 70s was a loaded decade. And of course, it was coming off the wake of the cultural chaos known as, the 60s <laughs> and and that gave us the 80s and so i grew up in this kind of environment where basically we were just trying to figure out like the world's gone crazy and what do we do and you know a lot of christians turned to politics and they were successful with politics and you know the moral majority did get reagan elected and it was kind of an amazing thing But you kind of fast forward a couple decades and and here we are. And and, and I bring all this up to tell you kind of a punchline. Here's the punchline that by and large, the Christians in America have a really hard time understanding how to think about and how to approach culture. And on the flip side right now, as we all saw today, just watching the headlines having to do with Chick-fil-A or any of the other headlines about, you know, the evangelical support for Trump or any of the other headlines about almost anything else, the larger culture, especially right now, is deeply struggling to understand Christians. So right now there's kind of an equal opportunity offense between the two. And I want you to understand there's a whole lot we could talk about. I could give you tons of examples. My favorite example, by the way, of the culture not knowing how to understand Christians was a headline story of the New, in the New York Times years ago, and it was talking about a, a procession in a Catholic church. And, of course, what leads the procession is the cross, which is called a crozier. And they actually spelled it when they reported on it, crow's ear. Like they, they spelled it crow's ear. At that point, you're like, you're not even trying, guys. You know, like, you know, give us a shot here. I say all that to say, like, you know, we are in this moment of trying to, to, to understand culture. We could spend a lot of time talking about what the ins and outs are. And I want to get into that a little bit. But but I also want you to understand, like, there's an entire history of theologians and biblical scholars and Christian thought leaders wrestling hard and trying to get a framework for understanding culture. And there's different schools of thought on this. Some of you grew up in the maybe in the school of thought, which was like me, which is the culture is just a bad thing to be condemned. Or maybe you grew up in a very politically charged sort of place, which was kind of where, you know, the school and the church that I grew up became kind of more associated with. And, you know, at that point, you know, Christianity can be confused with being a Republican and being doing Republican politics. Or maybe you grew up in a more social justice where, you know, Christianity is supposed to change the world. And it's, you know, what it what it looks like when it changes the world is an awful lot like wokeness, you know, and there's all kinds of different models of this. And, and the fact is, people have wrestled hard with this question. Right now, a guy that has contributed, I think, some very important, some very important things to the whole conversation is a guy named Rod Dreher. And Rod is a blogger at the American Conservative, and he's known for a new book that he has written called The Benedict Option. In light of all the massive changes that have taken place in the last 10 or 15 years in American culture, particularly in the further and further ostracization and removal of kind of a Christian ethic, Christian morality from the public square. Rod's suggestion is, is that we're quickly approaching the point where Christians are going to have to withdraw from culture, from the main centers of culture in order to preserve their faith. Now, The Benedict Option is not something that I fully agree with, but there are a couple things that I really appreciate about it. And I'm going to say some conclusions and there's whole histories to some of these things, but, but, but hopefully it's helpful. Here's, here's what the Benedict Option has done. Well, first of all, it started a conversation because at the end of the 20th century, Christians were called back into culture and into politics and into business and into education as a way of uh, what many people called cultural engagement. And this is coming out of the 20th century. The earlier 20th century where many Christians thought that the right thing to do was to withdraw from the culture because of the way culture was changing even back then. Some of that had to do with race, some of that had to do with evolution, some of that had to do with all kinds of things. And so at the end of the 20th century, it was almost like Christians, evangelicals in particular, got their sea legs again and they were ready to jump back into culture. So for Rod Dreher to say, hey, it's time maybe for Christians to pull back out, that's where a lot of evangelicals kind of lost their minds and said, you know, this is crazy. We can't do that. We've got to engage in that sort of stuff. And by the way, I agree with that, that we've got to engage. That's where I don't fully agree with Rod. Here's where Rod is is right in, in this conversation. Where Rod is right in the conversation to, uh, in, in the Benedict Option, is he reminds us of a couple things. The first thing is, Is something that evangelicals need to know. And that is throughout the history of evangelicalism, and I mean all the way back to from the first great awakening, we can even go earlier, but let's start with the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the second great awakening with Charles Finney and some others. Evangelicals have been very, very comfortable using cultural stuff like cultural technologies, cultural. Messaging cultural, you know, institutions and artifacts to deliver their message without always realizing how the culture was shaping the message and reshaping the message. Let me say that again. For a long time, evangelicals have been very, very comfortable using whatever's latest and greatest in culture without always appreciating the way the culture was shaping them. And that's one of the things that I think the Benedict Option and Rod has kind of brought to our attention. And here it is, ready? That culture shapes us. It doesn't just change the way we think if we're not aware, like, you know, because there's bad ideas and and that will go along with the bad ideas. I mean, culture gives us certain habits. Culture makes us think certain things are normal. Culture actually reshapes how we think about life and the world, how we think about ourselves in some really powerful ways. The second thing is, that I think Rod has really contributed that's really helpful is and specifically, what is culture doing to us? And I'll sum it up this way. The power of culture is that it catechizes us. Yeah, if you if you grew up in a uh, like Presbyterian or Lutheran or Anglican, you went through some level of catechism. You know, here are the basics of the faith. What my my point is is that culture does the same thing. You get into these rhythms and you get into these habits. And culture and culture more than it even claims your belief, culture claims your identity and your loyalties. One of the more subtle ways that culture influences us. It influences us in our identity, who we think we are, and our loyalties, what at the end of the day that we're actually going to, you know, kind of fight for, and our, you might say our allegiances, what we're allegiant to. And so I I, I think that, that Rod has a point on both of those things. Now, if that name, Roger, is not familiar with, to you, and the Benedict Jobs is not familiar to you, I just want to catch you up. That there's a real conversation happening right now over the approach to culture. I think those two things are really, really helpful. And one of the things that Rod is warning us of is that there's no possible way to engage culture without really paying the price at some level in our identities and our loyalties. One might look at the Chick-fil-A decision today and go, maybe that's an example of that. But earlier, Adam mentioned a a guy that influenced me. He's the guy that is the namesake of the organization that I run, a guy named Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson spent a significant part of his life calling Christians to engage culture. And it's a really interesting story if you don't know. Chuck Colson's kind of known for having three lives. His first life was as Nixon's hatchet man. He was a special counsel to President Nixon before he became a Christian. Went into the White House, got Nixon reelected, helped engineer that reelection campaign, and on his way out of the White House, he was going to go back to his law practice. Was right when the Watergate scandal was starting to heat up, and a former client of his who had been saved at a Billy Graham crusade shared Christ with Chuck, and he started to, to uh, and he trusted Christ. Now it was one of those kind of crazy times. I mean, some of you guys are overachievers, I know, and and this is a warning to all of us. Chuck talks about in his biography, having engineered Nixon's reelection campaign, and he's at the reelection party walking around going, what the heck do I do now? Think about it. He was 37. What do you do after you're in the White House at age 37? I mean, what else brings you meaning? What else brings you purpose? Do you go make a lot of money? And he was smart enough to know that that wouldn't fulfill him. And that's really, that's a warning for overachievers like all of you. You got to have something continually to live for. And that's actually ultimately what brought Chuck to Christ. Well, Chuck came to Christ and immediately went to prison because of Watergate, which is, you know, not always kind of how a uh, discipleship process goes. But that's how it went for him. He went off to to prison and, and, and then he got out of prison. And he started uh, an organization called Prison Fellowship. Some of you probably have heard of Prison Fellowship. Maybe you worked with Angel Tree. That's really popular this time of year where you buy presents for, you know, kids whose parents are incarcerated. But as he started to build this huge prison ministry, and he became one of the great prison reformers in history, really. But as he started to build it, he started to notice two things. Number one is the prison population was exploding. This was the time in American history. In fact, I remember him talking about this all the time. He'd say, you know, when I was in prison, and that would have been like 1970 something, he said, you know, there are 200,000 incarcerated Americans. And today, and that would have been about 2010 to 35 years later, there are 2.2 million. So the growth was astronomical. and And here's what he wanted to know. What's gone wrong in the culture that has led to the brokenness that we see in the prisons? He was smart enough to know that Prison's filling is a fruit, not a root. Right? It's 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 a consequence of something deeper that was happening in the culture. And by the way, I think that's true of so many different areas of our world. uh, That what we see as crises, the opioid epidemic, you know, you can almost put them into two categories: acts of desperation and deaths from despair. What you see there is fruit of a deeper brokenness that's affecting all of culture. And the second thing Chuck wanted to know is not only what was breaking in culture that was leading to the brokenness that he saw in the prisons, but secondly, where was the church? As a student of church history, he realized that the church was always at its best when it was running to the brokenness, not away from it. When it was running into the mess, not away from it. So the guy that influenced Chuck Colson was a guy named Abraham Kuyper. And I know I'm giving you a lot of names here, but Kuyper was a Dutch theologian pastor, a statesman, a newspaper editor, the prime minister, a university president. Like, you still talking about one guy? Yeah, it was Abraham Kuyper. This dude was unbelievable. He was an amazing guy. And Kuyper was, uh, again, in the Netherlands, late 1800s. And he deeply influenced Chuck's understanding of the relationship between faith and culture. Specifically, in two ways. The first is that this, and uh, let me see if I can sum this up for you, because it's a very important part of this. How do I want to get here? This will be fun. Let me give you the two kind of punchlines of, of Kuiper. The first one is that the starting point for Christian theology is the lordship of God fully expressed in Jesus Christ. That's where the Bible begins and ends. Now, to understand really what he meant by that, you need to kind of contrast it. When he talked about how the starting point for the Christian faith is the authority of God, the lordship of God, he actually at the time compared it to Lutheranism. Now, if you're a Lutheran, don't be offended at me. This is what Kuyper said. I didn't say it. Okay? Kuyper said it. That if you're a Lutheran, remember Martin Luther, Reformation, dealing with salvation by faith alone. That Lutherans in his day, he said, actually saw the starting point of Christianity and Christian theology to be justification. In other words, how we as sinners are made right with God. Kuiper said that's not the starting point, that our salvation serves a higher purpose. The higher purpose is the rule of God that's expressed in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's expressed in the new heavens and new earth. And so everything else serves that purpose of the rule of God. Here's one of Kuyper's famous quotes. He said, there's not a single square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign overall, does not cry out, mine. And that's really the, the punchline of the whole world is that God's in charge and he's fully expressed that he's in charge in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that really distinguishes Kuyper. The second thing that really distinguishes Kuyper is what he would call the relationship between nature and grace. Now, when you hear the word nature and you hear the word grace, those are his words, but really what he's talking about is the relationship between creation and redemption. All right? In other words, the cre- the, the relationship between the world as God made it and the world as God saves it. Now, here's Here's what Kuyper was trying to say, because different, you can look at different denominations, different theologians, and how they see the relationship between creation and redemption. Some would see redemption, you know, is, is higher than creation. Some would see redemption is creation. Some would see all, you know, different relationships. So we're talking about Roman Catholics or Lutherans. Kuyper's vision was redemption restores creation or grace restores nature. In other words, from the garden, from God's created intent in the garden to the work of Jesus Christ, God's purposes haven't changed. It's one story. It's not two stories. The cross isn't God looking at his world going, oh, shoot, what am I going to do about this? Got it. Jesus, go take care of it. That's, that, that's not how it works. In fact, he has this wonderful quote that I think makes a lot of sense. Here's what he said. He said, can you imagine that God would rule the world in one way in creation and now rule it differently in Christ? God's created order remains. Now, you say, what does this have to do with anything? What this has to do with anything is really important when it comes to culture, because if God's created order remains, then God's purposes in creating the world haven't changed. God's purposes in the world stay the same. God's purposes for marriage, God's purposes for relationships, God's purposes for the world to be fruitful and multiply, right? All of these purposes actually remain. So another way to say that is when God looked at the world and he said it's good, and he looked at humans and he said it's very good, When Christ comes, he doesn't come to save us from being human. He doesn't come to take our humanness from us. He doesn't come to squash our humanness because the fact that we're sinners means we're no longer humans or that humans are no longer good. He came to give us our humanness back because that was the purpose at the very beginning of creation. Does does that make sense? That Christ didn't come to take away our humanness. He didn't come to take away the goodness of the world. He came to restore the goodness of the world. Now, the reason I put all that together is, is because it seems like Benedict, the Benedict option, at least as Roger describes it, seems to be in conflict with Kuiper. But but what I suggest is, is that Benedict, this idea that culture is really powerful, and that it can actually shape our loyalties and all of that sort of stuff needs Kuiper. In other words, when we look at our culture and we see how broken it is, and we see how dramatically things have shifted. And look, things have shifted dramatically. I mean, the speed at which things went from being unthinkable to unquestionable has been almost overwhelming for many of us. And our temptation is to look at this and throw our hands up and go, all is lost. In fact, Several years ago, uh, I wrote a book on same-sex marriage, and this was actually before the Obergefell decision that came out of the Supreme Court that mandated it. It was actually before the decision before the Obergefell decision that made Obergefell inevitable, Uh, but it was after, you know, modern family and glee. So it was inevitable that we were going to get same-sex marriage because it had already taken over pop culture, and that's how things go. Politics responds to culture more than leads culture, not always, but most of the time. That's another fight we can have. I I wrote a book on same-sex marriage with my friend, Sean McDowell. And people often are like, why'd you write that book? And I'm like, I was hoping to make some friends. And so anyway, that, that, yeah, it wasn't controversial at all. But what was interesting about that is how many people after the Obergefell decision, in fact, even in the middle of this conversation and writing the book and the research we were doing, I had a pastor look at me and say, John, it's over. We've lost. And see, the temptation of Benedict, the Benedict option, and those that are spidey sense aware of how dramatically culture has shifted and how, how big of a deal it is, the sorts of conversations we're having. And by the way, I'm taking for, for granted that you guys agree with me on that. Maybe in the q and A, I I can tell you how dramatically culture has shifted. If you think it hasn't, like It has. (laughs) And we can talk more about that. I mean, it it has in enormous ways. The point I'm trying to make is, is for those of us that are aware of that, we can actually be confused and think that that's the story of the world. That the downfall of Western culture or the downfall of the last four years or the dramatic shifts and fundamental understandings of what it means to be human and what's right and wrong and who we are, protecting children versus not protecting children, that all of those things is what the entire story is about. And what type, the reason Benedict needs Kuiper is that Kuiper reminds us that as a significant as the issues are that we're fooling around with and kicking around and experimenting with in our cultural moment, that there's a bigger story of which our culture is a part. And see, many Christians stand in the culture as if that's the real world and try to rethink the biblical story. What we've got to do is realize that this big biblical story of nature and grace or creation and redemption, that's, that's held together by the ultimate rule and authority of God, fully expressed in Jesus Christ, that, that is the big story. And from that, I've got to understand the journey. The culture is not reality, culture is what humans do with reality. And God has given us an amazing capacity to do stuff with reality. Here's the crazy part. We actually can take our reality in line. We can take so we can take our culture in line with reality, or we can take our culture away from reality. But it doesn't change reality. Reality still is what reality is. The story of the world is still still what the story of the world is. The second thing reason that I think that Benedict needs Kuiper is because those of us that take seriously how dramatically things have changed and it bothers us. And we know that it really matters. We need to remember that no matter how crazy it gets right here, the truest thing about our world is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Like that is the truth. And that's not just, see, see what happens is in our day and age, and this is actually one of the main features of Western culture right now, is that we have learned or we have been taught to take religious truths and turn them into personal private preference claims. And so we, we read in the New Testament where, you know, Peter is at Pentecost saying Jesus is risen or God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus who he crucified. And we hear that and see that through 21st century Western eyes. And what we mean is, is that, you know, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Well, look, I hope Jesus is the Lord of your life, but that's not what Peter was saying. Peter wasn't saying that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Peter was saying Jesus is Lord. Whether you acknowledge it or not doesn't change it. Like, he is Lord. He's not Lord if you remember he's Lord, you know, any more than Trump is the president if we remember that he's president, right? No, this is a a title that Jesus has been—that was a bad analogy, I'm really sorry. That is a title that Jesus has been given— that will never, he's Lord because he's risen. These are universal barbaric yelps of the early church, like Christ is risen. And those of us that take seriously how dramatically things have changed need to keep that in mind. And I say this with great humility, because, you know, as we look at the challenges we face, you know, uh, compared to our brothers and sisters facing down Boko Haran or our, our brothers and sisters, you know, dealing with some of the ancient Christian communities uh, and some of the ancient Christian communities on the planet facing this sort of beef from radical Islam. I have to say the same thing about them. No matter how crazy it gets, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Now, I gave you two reasons that I think Benedict needs Kuiper. Let me give you two reasons why Kuiper needs Benedict. And I say this because whether you may have never heard let me, let me give you two reasons why we need, Kuiper needs Benedict. Kuiper needs Benedict, and, and I think it's probably good for all of us who, you know, kind of are in these leadership programs and are gung-ho trying to run in and change the world for Jesus Christ and, and that sort of stuff. One of the things that Benedict reminds us of is that it is a very dangerous thing to use The how do I want to say it to use the levers of power in a particular cultural moment to drive the gospel forward? Marshall McLuhan taught us a long time ago that the medium is the message, and we have to be very, very careful about thinking. I mean, you, I mean, look, it's not just us. Many people don't know that in the first great awakening, one of the innovations was publishing salvation accounts in the newspaper, the newspaper was new. Right. And, and allowing it to go from one newspaper in one city to another newspaper in another city. This was all technology that the First Great Awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Prince used, you know, to push out the First Great Awakening. I'm not saying it was good or bad. I'm just saying it was different. The Second Great Awakening had altar calls. I don't know if you ever grew up in an altar called church. That's how I grew up. But this is a pretty recent innovation in, in Christian history. Now, is there anything wrong with altar calls? I've got some issues with it for this or that or the other. I don't think they're completely bad. I just know that the medium sometimes can be the message. And now we're talking about televangelist empires of the 1980s. And now we get to the 2000s and we're talking about trying to share the gospel on Twitter. What could go wrong? I got to tell you, when I speak, I am always like, hey, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at such and such. If you're not on Twitter, do not start. Right, because it's just a terrible, terrible thing sometimes to be a part of, and and we have to be aware. And when you start talking about political avenues of power, or you start talking about corporate or executive avenues of power, you know we need to be very, very wary of the way the culture can shape us. And that brings up, I think, the second reason that Kuiper needs Benedict is that, and I didn't go into the history of Benedict. And when you hear it, you're probably thinking monastery, and you know. And that's because that's what it is, but there were two types of monasteries: There was a monastery that really pulled away from the world in which you kind of beat yourself over the back and you know stayed away from everything. But Benedict's idea was to pull away from collapsing Roman civilization, pull in all the good things from that time, and preserve them until the moment that that he could gift them back to the larger world, you know. And that includes like technology, that included reading and education, that there was a a job of Christians to preserve what's good and to give it back to the world. And one of the ways that you had to do that was to remember the importance of countercultural rhythms. As this culture was collapsing, Benedict created this, and you've heard the rule of Benedict and so on. He created this different way of being human and a different way of being human together. That's where Kuyper needs Benedict. Kuiper needs Benedict because you and I as Christians should not just be engaging culture. We should be creating and producing counterculture. The way we do leadership should be different. The way we do education should be different. The way we do communication over technology should be different. The way we do politics should be different. The way we do public policy should be different. The way we use and imbibe Facebook, if we do, should be different. Right? These um, there should be a countercultural way that we even are gift preserving that which is good about the human experience and giving it back to the world in a world that's going away from reality. So that's why I think Kuyper needs Benedict and Benedict needs Kuyper. And hopefully this can kind of spark our imagination just a little bit in order to think about what leadership looks like for all of us.
0: Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you liked the show... Please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit ForgeLeadership.org.